Hey everyone, I'm so glad you're back for session three of our judges study. I'm Nicole Hager, and before we jump into learning about Gideon and Abimelech, let's do a quick review of what has happened up until now, in case you missed it. In session one, we looked at the introduction of judges, and we saw this complete downward spiral of the Israelites after they entered the promised land. We saw that at first they mostly obeyed, then they halfway obeyed, and then finally they completely failed to obey God in driving out the Canaanites, and they were living amongst them and worshiping their gods. We saw a pretty significant downward spiral. Then, last week, we looked at four different judges, and we saw how God uses the unlikely and even the ill-equipped to deliver his people. This week, we're going to be looking at the next judge, and we're going to see that just as there was a downward spiral of the Israelites in the introduction, there's also a bit of a downward spiral in the judges themselves throughout the book. We started with Othniel, who was the ideal judge. Then we saw God using Ehud, Shamgar, and Deborah, and they were unlikely choices from a worldly perspective, but from what we can see, they were faithful to God, and they followed where he led. But today we're going to see that God is going to again use an unlikely person, but unlike the previous judges up to this point, we're going to see that Gideon has some trouble finishing well, and there's some pretty major consequences. So this cycle that we've seen on repeat throughout the book of Judges has been pretty clean and straightforward up to this point. But now even that cycle is going to start to unravel a bit, and we're going to see some steps getting added in. So let's dive in and take a quick look. Um, I also just want to make a, a note just to let you guys know, I've been able to read the entire text for each session up until now, but we're starting to cover a lot more ground in these later sessions. And so today I'm going to have to do quite a bit more paraphrasing. So we are going to go through all of the text, but a lot of it's going to be paraphrased rather than me reading every single verse, just to make sure I don't keep you here way too long. But I am going to start by reading. So let's go ahead and go to chapter 6, verse 1, and jump in. It says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. And the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens, which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. So... The first thing that we're noticing is that the oppression is described in much greater detail here. It kind of seems like the oppression maybe is greater than in the past cycles, and that's why we're kind of hearing more details about it. Um, we see that the people are literally hiding in caves while the Midianites eat and destroy their crops for seven straight years. Um, they're starving, and then they have to watch the fruits of their labor that they've worked throughout the whole um, you know, time that they harvest their crops. And as soon as it's time to start harvesting and enjoying the crops, then the Midianites come in and devour it all. They leave nothing else. Even They don't even have any livestock anymore because the Midianites have taken all of that. And while not having crops or livestock doesn't mean much to us, I mean, we don't really have that anyway, but in their culture and in their life, they depended on their crops and their livestock, their crops and their livestock to survive. So this was a really big deal. Okay, let's continue. Verse 7. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt. And brought you out from the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians, and from the hands of all of your oppressors, and dispossessed them before you, and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. So what just happened here? Up to this point, the cycle went that after the people were oppressed, they would cry out to the Lord, and he would raise up a judge. 
This time, though, there's this extra step thrown in because instead of raising up a judge, he sends a prophet first. Why do this? Why do you think this is? Up to this point, we've seen that God was helping them in their distress in this physical sense, but there has not been any lasting change. They continue to turn to idols over and over again as soon as the judge dies. So here, instead of going first to their physical needs, God is addressing their spiritual state. Some commentators think that this means that when they cried out to God here, it wasn't really true repentance. They wanted him to bless them by removing their bad circumstances, but they didn't really want to turn their hearts to him. And other commentators even say that this is what they've been doing all along from the very beginning. And even in the first cycle, they weren't truly repenting when they cried out. But either way, things had progressed to a point that God is trying to turn their eyes to what he had done for them and how their own actions led them to where they are. It wouldn't be loving to continue to save them repeatedly without addressing their hearts first. It seems like God is trying to make them feel some sort of conviction here in order to bring them to true repentance. And just in case you're tempted to feel that you're above the Israelites in any way, let's look inward for a second. Because have you ever asked God to save you from the consequences of your sin, but not wanted to turn from the actual sin itself? Have you ever begged God to change your circumstances, whether they were caused, caused by your own sin or not, and then just been frustrated when you just get reminders of what God is doing in and through it instead of him changing it? Um, one commentator, Dale Davis, the way he puts it is he says, Understanding God's way of holiness is more important than absence of pain. We may want out of a bind, whereas God wants us to see our idolatry. God means to instruct us, not pacify us. So, we're more like the Israelites than you think. And like them, our hearts often need reminders of our spiritual state more than we need our circumstances changed. So what happens next? Do the Israelites hear this prophet and hear his words and then repent? No. There is no indication that they repent at all. But God is so good and gracious and kind, and he raises up a judge anyway. So let's look and see what happens. Verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the, Ab the Abizarite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles about which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O oh Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So we see here the Lord comes to Gideon and he calls them to deliver the, or an angel of the Lord, I guess. An angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and calls him to deliver, to deliver the Israelites. Um, in verse 11, we see that Gideon is hiding in a wine press, beating out wheat so that he won't get caught. So from the moment we're introduced to him, we see him in what is most usually interpreted as an element of fear. Um, he's hiding out in this wine press so he won't get caught while he beats out his wheat so that it won't get taken from him. And this is kind of a contrast to the very next verse, which the angel of the Lord calls him a valiant warrior. Um, other translations say mighty man of valor. So which is it? Is he fearful or is he a valiant warrior? Well, maybe the angel of the Lord is seeing something in him that God is going to draw out. Or maybe he's speaking some truth into him of what God is going to do to help him in combat his fear. But however you interpret it, our first glimpse of him hiding in this wine press is definitely not looking like a valiant warrior, but that is what he is called by the angel of the Lord. 
So then we see that Gideon argues with the angel a little bit, and he points out all this evidence of why it seemed like the Lord had deserted them. So does it seem like he listened to the words of the prophet that had just been sent? Remember that prophet that God sent and reminded them of what he had done for them and how they kind of got themselves into this mess? Did it seem like those words sunk into Gideon? No, they had not. Gideon was still focused on his current circumstances, not his spiritual state, and he was not trying to turn his heart to God. But we're seeing so much of God's grace because God continues to pursue him. And finally, in this section, we see Gideon explaining why he's an unlikely choice, other than his fear that we're kind of seeing throughout the book. He tells the angel that he is the youngest one in his father's house, which is from the least important family in this tribe. So we see that in the eyes of his culture, he's kind of the bottom of the barrel in a way, but none of that matters. Why? We'll look at verse 16. God tells him, surely I will be with you. And as we've seen throughout the book of Judges, that is the only thing that matters. So let's continue. For the sake of time, I'm going to start paraphrasing here a bit. In verses 17 through 24, we see Gideon ask for a sign from the angel to prove that he was who he says he was. So he asks the angel to stay there while he prepares an offering. He butchers a goat and he prepares some meat. He bakes some bread and he makes broth. And if you have any experience cooking, you know that this would have taken a very long time. Um, remember also they were experiencing an extreme famine. So to prepare this kind of offering was an enormous sacrifice and he wouldn't have made this kind of sacrifice if he wasn't pretty sure that the angel was who he says he was, but he just needed that extra little bit of proof to be certain enough to be able to follow him. And he brings the offering, which again, this angel was sitting there for a very long time waiting for this. This wasn't just him running back into the house to get some food. This was a pretty significant weight. Um, so he brings his offering and the angel of the Lord touches it with his staff and it's consumed with fire. And then he disappears. And Gideon is immediately afraid because he realizes that he was just looking on the Lord. And there's kind of some different views on was this, um, you know, an angel of the Lord or was this kind of Jesus um, pre-incarnate? Um, but however you see it, um, and he knows that he's been looking on the Lord in some way. And so he's afraid and he knows that nobody can look upon the Lord and live. But God tells him, it's okay, you're not going to die. Um, and then Gideon builds an altar to the Lord. So this is sign number one that Gideon asks for from God to reassure him that it is truly God's instructions that he is following. So let's pick back up now in verse 25. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And it came about, because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, that he did it by night. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah which was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, Baal or would you, con would you deliver him? Um, whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore on that day he named him Jeroboam, that is to say, let Baal contend, contend against him, because he has torn down his altar." So we see a few important things here. God tells Gideon to tear, tear down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah. We learn more about what these were in week one. So why would this be the first thing that God tells him to do? 
The rest of the judges immediately went out and defeated the enemy as soon as they were called. But God isn't doing that with Gideon. He's having them tear down these altars first. Um, what's the significance of this? Well, we just saw that God sent this prophet before even going to Gideon in the first place. Um, he wants the people to deal with their hearts. Their biggest problem isn't the Midianites. Their biggest problem is themselves. Their hearts continue to seek after the idols of the Canaanites and not after the one true God. Some might even say that God was kind in letting them fall into the hands of Midianites because that was what it would take to turn them back to him. Have you ever experienced some form of suffering that God used to strengthen your faith in him in some way? We see here that before God wants to save them physically, he wants to save their hearts from that which truly keeps them in bondage. So he demands that the idols be torn down. And it's easy to read this and think that it just doesn't apply to us. I mean, come on. How many of us have altars of Tabal and Ashtaroth in our home? Um, there's this quote uh, from a guy named Michael Wilcock, and it's worded so much better than I could ever say it. And it's kind of lengthy, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. Um, it is worth it. So this is what he says about that. He says, The gods have not changed, for human nature has not changed. And these are the gods that humanity regularly recreates for itself. What does it want? If it's modest, security and comfort and reasonable enjoyment. If ambitious, power and wealth and unbridled self-indulgence. In every age, there are forces at work which promise to meet our desires, whether political programs, economic theories, career options, philosophies, lifestyle options, entertainment programs, all having one feature in common. They promise that they can make our lives better than we can make them ourselves. Yet at the same time, they appear amenable to our manipulating them so that we can get what we want without losing our independence. Here is the enemy among us. We say we worship the Lord, but the world has crept in and controls our heart. So even though we don't have the same external representation of these idols, we don't have an altar to Baal or Asheroth, the same needs um, that the Israelites were trying to meet with these false gods, we try to meet those same needs today, those needs of self-indulgence or comfort or security or power or wealth. Um, we have the same idols. They just look different. Um, human nature is no different today than it was. And just as God wanted to be the Lord of the Israelites' hearts, God wants to be the Lord of yours. He wants to be the Lord of your life. So what circumstances is he using in your life to draw you away from the false gods of our false gods of our culture and to draw him to himself instead? So Gideon tears down the ball in the Asheroth and we see that he does it at night because surprise, surprise, he's afraid. Are you starting to see this theme of fear in Gideon yet? What's important though? Should he be criticized for doing it at night? I mean, wouldn't a mighty warrior as he's been called do it in the middle of the day for everybody to see? Or a mighty warrior would have at least stuck around in the morning and own up to what he had done. But we see that Gideon hides the next day. They, everybody wakes up and sees this and Gideon's nowhere to be found. Gideon lets his dad protect him from the people. Um, but I think that when we start criticizing him for his fear, we kind of miss the fact that even though he was obviously afraid, he did it anyway. We're seeing through Gideon that it's not the amount of faith or the strength of our faith that's important. It's the object of our faith that matters. Um, Gideon obeyed and is going to continue to obey despite his fear. So he might not look like a mighty man of valor yet, but that's what God has declared him to be, and that is what God is molding him into. So when we focus on his fear, we make the story about a man. But when we focus on how God used him despite his fear, we make the story about his true hero, which is God. So then we see next that the armies form. 
Gideon assembles his men, and the enemy are camped nearby, so war is approaching. Um, now Gideon is going to ask for not one, but two more signs from God. First, he's going to ask that if God is going to deliver him as he has spoken, that he would give him a sign by making this fleece that he's going to lay down overnight, be wet in the morning, but all the dry, all the ground around him be dry. Um, so he does. He lays out this fleece in the morning. The fleece is wet, and he can wring it out into a bowl, but all the, dr- the ground around it is dry. So that should be good enough, right? Wrong. It is not good enough. And Gideon knows that he's kind of pushing the limits here. Um, he knows he's not operating out, operating out of faith because he basically says, in essence, ooh, don't be mad, but can I have just one more sign? And he asks God this time to leave the floor wet, but only the fleece dry in the morning. And wool is very absorbing. So this would have been a lot more miraculous because um, it, the fleece would have naturally soaked up any water around it. So for this to happen would have been highly unlikely. Um, but again, we see that he lays out the fleece and God answers by doing exactly what Gideon asked. So that we see Gideon is plagued by fear and doubt. And it's also been pointed out by some people that he's kind of acting a little bit like a Canaanite here because an important part of Canaanite culture was to seek out signs and omens. Um, So you can see, remember, he's been immersed in this culture and he's kind of taking on some of those characteristics of the Canaanites and how he is approaching God. But we see again the kindness of God and that he gives Gideon the reassurance he needs and gives him the sign he asks for despite all of that. We see that God is going to equip those who he calls and he's going to meet us where we're at. Um, Tim Keller points out that unlike us, Gideon didn't have the entire Bible to tell him who God was. I mean, he had portions that were written up to that point. Um, and, but he was the product of a culture that mixed truth about God with lies about Canaanite false gods. So there's probably a lot he didn't know or understand about who God was. Um, so in asking for this specific sign, he wasn't just flipping a coin to help him make a decision. He was asking God to strengthen his faith by showing him his nature and teaching him who he really is. So what does that mean for us? Should we ask for signs? Like if we don't know if we should take that job or marry that person, or do we get to lay out a fleece? No, that is not what this text is teaching us because God is not our genie. Look at all the times that Jesus does miracles in the New Testament. These seem to always be for the purpose of showing the people that he is who he says he is. They are meant to point to the power of God over creation and to draw people to saving faith. They're not simply to change their lives or their circumstances, although that definitely happened and that was part of it. Um, But in the same way here, God gave Gideon this sign not to help him make a decision of what he was supposed to do, but he did this to show Gideon that he is who he says he is and he can do what he says he can do. Think about us when we want to ask for signs. What are the things that we wish we could ask for signs for? Are they, God, I just want to know you more and who you are. I want to strengthen my faith. Not really. Usually when we want to ask for a sign, we're thinking about ourselves and our futures. We want to know what we should do, not have a greater understanding of who God is. Do you see the difference there? So while God tolerated Gideon asking for a sign to help strengthen his faith and who God is so that he'd be able to follow him, that does not give us permission to start throwing our own fleeces to try to discern our own futures. That's completely missing the point. Because the most important thing in our lives isn't these decisions that we make, even big ones about a job or a spouse. Um, Yeah, those are important, but they're not the most important. The most important thing is do we believe that God is who he says he is? And that seems to be what all the miracles, signs, and wonders help people believe throughout the Bible. Okay, we're going to start moving a bit faster because we've only made it through one chapter and we still have three to go. So in chapter seven, we see that Gideon has gathered a great army of 32,000 people. 
God wants it to be clear, though, who should get the credit for the victory to come. He doesn't want it to be said that the army was great. Remember, he's trying to point his people back to himself. He wants it clear that he gives the army victory. So he tells Gideon to let any men who are afraid to go home. And we see that over two-thirds of the army leave. That's 22,000 people who were afraid and went home. So apparently Gideon was not the only one who struggled with fear. Um, but this practice of allowing those who were afraid to leave was actually common in that time, and it served a good purpose. Because if you ever felt okay about a situation and had a peace about it or weren't too worried or maybe felt pretty brave, but then you start having people around you be pretty scared and freaked out, and then pretty soon you're pretty freaked out too because fear is contagious. Um, I know that we kind of know throughout history of a lot of armies that would arrest men for fleeing because of fear, and they would call it treason. But the Israelites considered it smart military strategy to send home the fearful. So now this army is down to 10,000, but that's still too large to ensure that God would get the glory. So God tells Gideon to bring them down to the water to drink, and those who lapped the water like a dog were to stay, but anyone who knelt down to drink were to be sent home, and only 300 lapped water like a dog and the rest were sent home. Now, a lot of people have tried really hard to understand the significance of why he chose these. this as a reason to send people home. Like, what's the significance of those two types of drinking? And I've heard some people teach that the people who lap like a dog, basically they, like, filled their hands with water and then drink it out of their hands, like, with their tongue or whatever. Um, and they did that because they were more alert and they were keeping their eyes out for the enemy. Um, while the rest of the men who bent down to the water, they kind of left themselves vulnerable by bending all the way down. But the text never really says anything about that, though, and there doesn't really seem to be a whole lot of use in speculating because we know that the purpose was simply to get a smaller army so that there'd be no question that God was the hero and not man. So God tells Gideon to take these 300 men and send the rest home, whether that was significant how they drank or not, um, but he just wanted to have less men. So now we have 300 men, and now look at the kindness of God here. Um, let's go to chapter 7, verse 9. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Purah your servant down to the camp, and you will hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Purah his servant down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend, and he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his friend answered and said, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. And it came about, came about when Gideon heard the account of that dream and its interpretation that he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them, with torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpet and all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. So we see here there's a fourth sign. But didn't Gideon ask for it? No, this one was initiated by God. And look what God had just done. Gideon had an army of 32,000 people, and then God shrank it down to 300 and told him to pursue his enemy that we just see is so numerous that they compare it to locusts. So that's over 99% of his army gone. And we already know that Gideon struggles big time with fear. 
So how kind of God to offer what he knew Gideon would need in order to fulfill the role God was calling him to. And this sign, it didn't come without some risk to Gideon. Like think of the courage it would have had to take Gideon to sneak behind enemy lines and overhear this conversation. Like what if he had been caught? So for Gideon to take this kind of a risk shows a great degree of trust that he already had in the Lord. And God in his kindness gives him this, this boost that he needs to do what he was called to do. Now look at the imagery of the dream. A loaf of barley bread, which barley was the, the cheapest kind of grain. It was a bit of the cheapest kind of bread, kind of the poor man's bread at the time. Um, so for this, cheap, this piece of barley bread or a loaf of bread being thrown at this tent and knocking it down flat, nobody would be worried about a strong tent being knocked over by an insignificant loaf of bread. And so just as this powerful army would not have been worried about a tiny army of 300 men from the people they had been oppressing for so long, striking them down. And God allows Gideon to hear that even this strong army was declaring, this guy in the army was declaring that the dream was about himself and what his army would do. And what does Gideon finally do? He worships. He worships the Lord. Something is produced in him that didn't happen when he asked for the previous signs. So when he initiated the sign, worship was not produced. But when God initiates a sign, it produced worship. And now we're about to see Gideon finally step into the role of mighty warrior that God had already described to him. So let's go to verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. And when they blew three hundred trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against the other, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah and towards Zerara, as far as the edge of Abel Meholah. <laughs> By Tabith. And the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all of Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them, as far as Beth Barah and Jordan. So the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb, while they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. So what happened was they snuck up at night on the enemy camp and they're all carrying a trumpet and an empty pitcher with a torch inside. So if you have a trumpet in one hand and a torch in the other, what are you not holding? Weapons. There is no mention of them having any weapons in their hands. I mean, they might've had them somewhere else in their body, but they weren't ready with them. Think of the faith that it would have taken these men to do this. We already know this was a huge army they were up against. And not only are they only 300, they're doing it without weapons in their hands. Um, we also see here that they sneak up on the camp when the, um, they're changing watch. And this was really smart because that meant that a third of the enemy would be sleeping. A third would be walking back to the tents, feeling really tired because they had just had watch. And the third would be walking out to take their shift on watch. So they'd be kind of tired because they had just been sleeping. So when Gideon and his men start blowing these 300 trumpets and lighting their torches, what happens? 
Well, the people who were waking up would have heard what sounded like a much larger army than it really was. And then when they came out of their tents, they would have seen armed men approaching them. And because it was nighttime and dark, not to mention they had just been abruptly woken up from a sound sleep by all these trumpets, it would have been so easy to mistake their own men coming in from their watch with their weapons ready as an invader. And that's exactly what it looks like happened. So Gideon and his men basically stood there and watched this confused army fight themselves by mistake and kill each other themselves. And those who didn't fight or die all start to flee. So then, now that this army, who is what's left of them, is fleeing, we see Gideon call to the tribe of Ephraim to come and help catch the leaders of this Midianite army. Um, So the leaders of the Midianite army, they were fleeing through the, the territory of Ephraim. And so Ephraim is able to catch the two leaders and kill them. Look at where the second leader was killed. He was killed in a wine press. Where did we first meet Gideon? Hiding inside of a wine press. So we see now that the wine press, which was originally the location for Gideon's weakness, is now a location where his strength is displayed, or more accurately, God's strength is displayed. We kind of see this coming full circle. Um, Turn with me a minute just to Hebrews chapter 11. This section has been dubbed by many as kind of the hall of faith. Um, This whole chapter basically has um, a lot of people throughout scripture that are just listed and commended for their faith. And I want you to read with me, Verses 32 through 34, it says, and what, and he's already listed a bunch of people for their faith, people, you know, that like Moses and Abraham. And then he says, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, and shut the mouths of lions. So Gideon, despite his fear and despite the fact that he needed four signs from God, he's commended for his faith. Now, a lot of people don't know what to do with this because how can he be commended for faith when he seems to need so much convincing? And not to mention, he's got the not-so-stellar ending, which we're about to get to. Well, remember what we've seen in the Judges so far and what we see throughout all of Scripture. God uses the weak to shame the strong. His power was perfectly displayed in Gideon's weakness as he used him to conquer kingdoms and raised him into the valiant warrior that he called him at the beginning of chapter 7. So that brings us now to where things begin to take a turn. We're about to see that Gideon has some significant flaws in how he begins to rule and there's some pretty big consequences. Um, Up until now in the judges cycles, once the enemy was defeated, the land experienced rest as the people followed God for as long as the judge was alive. With Gideon, though, we're going to see that, yes, there is some time of rest, but the people are going to start backsliding while he's still alive. And then his time of rule after this miraculous defeat was so flawed and so messy. And the time after that was such a train wreck that we're given all of these details in two whole chapters. Every judge up to this point has had their time of rule described in a single verse. Um, So let's see where things start to go wrong. I'm going to sum up the first half of chapter eight for you for the sake of time. And I'm just going to trust that you've already read and studied it. Um, But the men of Ephraim are a little upset with Gideon for not calling them to the fight originally. Um, They kind of got pulled in after the fight began because the leaders of this enemy army were happening to escape near or through Ephraim's territory. So Gideon had like called them in to help and they're pretty mad like, why didn't you call us at the beginning? Um, So Gideon kind of has to do some smooth talking to settle down their bruised egos. He says, hey, you know, what was I able to do in comparison with you? Like what I did was nothing. You guys are the ones who killed the leaders. And so he's kind of having to like 
you know, kind of um, help their egos a little bit. Um, because what was happening? Well, they does it sound like they were concerned about God's glory and God's victory and God getting recognition for what happened? No, they were upset that they weren't getting recognition or they weren't getting glory for this victory. Um, they wanted the glory for themselves. So Gideon pacifies them, and then he takes his 300 men to find the two enemy kings because we saw Ephraim took care of the leaders of the armies of the Midianites and the Amalekites, but now Gideon and his men were pursuing the kings to finish the job. And remember, they were starving because they had had this time of famine for years and years. Their crops had been stolen for so long, and now they'd been out fighting for a long time, and they'd probably run out of food. So as they're pursuing these two kings, they kind of stop in two different cities and they ask these cities to help them out and give them some bread just so that they can do what they're trying to do. And both of these cities, Israelite cities, respond the same way. They both kind of say like, well, are the hands of these kings already in your hands that we should give you bread for your army? So we see that the Israelite people in these cities aren't willing to help feed the army that is saving them from their current oppression. And in both cities, how does Gideon respond? Does he respond well? Not really. He responds with anger and threats to come back and enact some sort of vengeance on each city because they wouldn't help him. So now to us, when we see what these cities did, it seems pretty awful. Like, why in the world wouldn't they help feed these starving men? These men were trying to help them at great personal risk. What's going on here? But the people in these cities knew, though, that if Gideon's army failed in what they were trying to do, and if they did not capture and kill the kings of these enemies... And if their city had given aid to Gideon's armies, then their cities would be completely destroyed. So they were not willing to take the risk. So it's not like they were just being jerks and not willing to give some bread to this army, but they also were not showing any trust in God, that he was who he said he was and that he would do what he promised to do. So they looked at this army of only 300 men led by the youngest son and the weakest clan in the tribe of Manasseh, and they didn't want to take any chances. They looked at what they could see with no thought about what God was doing, and they step back and they choose not to help. And then we see that Gideon has a bit of a temper that we had not seen before. Because think about what previous judges that we know were good leaders had done. Think about Othniel, when back in the book of Joshua, we talked about this in the first week. Whenever all of the Israelites were doubting that God could save them from their enemy, Othniel stands up and says, no, believe in God. God is with us. God will help us. God is going to do what he promised to do. He is a voice that tries to point them back to God. Is that what we see Gideon doing? No, not at all. Instead, he threatens to come back and to beat them with thorns and briars, which, by the way, is a Canaanite practice. And then he threatens to tear tear down their altars. So does this sound like a man who is trying to turn the people to God? Or does it sound like a man after vengeance? I think it's the vengeance one. And then we see that when he does end up capturing and killing the two kings, he's true to his word. So he captures these kings, he kills them, and then he comes back to both of these cities. He beats the men as he said he would. He tears down the altars as he said he would. And then he goes even farther and he kills the men of the second city. So notice what's happening here. The battle wasn't even over as Gideon chased down these two enemy kings. But who is he fighting with? He's fighting his own people. The tribe of Ephraim is upset because they're worried about their own status. And these two cities aren't willing to help because they're worried about their own security. And nobody seems to be praising God for the victory he just gave them. And now the Israelites are killing each other. This is a big digression from cycles of the previous judges. And what about Gideon? What does this show us about him? Well, again, is he upset that these cities aren't trusting that God can finish the job? Is he worried about their lack of faith? Or is his head getting bigger and now he's angry that he's not getting the respect from these cities that he feels he deserved? 
Remember, he's not reminding them of God's faithfulness like judges in the past. Instead, he basically says, you don't think I can do it? I'll show you. You're going to see my wrath. So it looks like this victory that he just had, this miraculous victory, is already taking his eyes off of God and bringing them onto himself. So he finds and kills these kings. He comes back and slaughters his own people who would not help him. And this was not something that God told him to do. This was an outcome of his own ego, it seems. So... After this entire battle is over and the Israelites are free from the oppression of the Midianites, we see one last great moment for Gideon. The people, they're so happy about what's happened. They're so happy that they're free of this oppression and they're just praising Gideon and they want to make him their king. And not just that, they want him to start a line of kings that would descend from him. But who is supposed to be their king? God is. And who did God go to great lengths to ensure that he would get the credit for delivering the Israelites? himself. God did everything possible to make sure that God would get the credit for this victory. Everything God did was so that the people would turn back to him. But we see here that they're giving Gideon the credit for the victory and not God. They want to make Gideon their king, not trust God as their king. They even say to Gideon, for you, you Gideon, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. So then Gideon makes this powerful statement. In verse 23, he says, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. What a great moment for Gideon. He's turning their eyes back to their true savior and he denies the role of king. Or does he? Let's look at what happens immediately after he denies the role of king. The very next word is yet. He denied the role, yet. He claimed God would be their king, yet. He then begins to act the way a king would act. He starts to assume the honor that would have been due to a king, and even more so. First, Gideon asks for everyone to give him an earring from their spoil, and he uses all of them to make for himself an ephod. He's collecting wealth wealth from the battle, and that's exactly what a king would have done. And then he goes and he makes an ephod for himself, which is beyond even the role of a king. Because an ephod was a garment covered in jewels that the high priest would wear. It had a pouch that contained these two stones that were used to discern God's will for his people. Um, So an ephod was tied to hearing from God and passing along God's direction to the Israelites. And there was one of them, and it belonged to the high priest, who lived in another city at this time. So in making an ephod for himself, Gideon is kind of trying to make himself God's mouthpiece to the Israelites, even though they already had a rightful high priest in another city with that purpose. So do you see him kind of grasping at power that God did not give him? And we see that this ephod becomes a snare to him and his family. So he no longer seems to be worshiping and serving God. Rather, he's using God to gain power and authority. And if you're not convinced yet, look at what else he does. We see in verse 30 that he had 70 sons by many wives, and he had a concubine as well. So having that many wives was what people who were aspiring to kingship did. And what does he name his son by his concubine? Abimelech. And I think I had you guys look this up. It literally means, my father is king. So clearly, even though Gideon knew that God was supposed to be king and he publicly declared that, he didn't truly take to heart his own words and he functionally lived out the very kingship he denied. And the cycle of Gideon ends just as the rest have ended. There's a period of peace while he's alive, which enjoyed that period of peace now because this is the last period of rest that there's going to be in the book of Judges. And then once he dies, the Israelites, what do you think they do? Of course, they turn from God and they worship the balls. And not only do they forget what God had done, they start to deal poorly with Gideon's family. They forget what he has done. And we start to see a major digression in the cycle. 
So that brings us to chapter nine, Gideon's son Abimelech. This whole chapter does not give an account of a judge that God had raised up, like what we've seen so far. Instead, we're going to see an account of a man who claimed kingship for himself with no indication of seeking after God in any way. Every judge we have read about was chosen by God. Abimelech chooses himself. And remember, there was no monarchy. God was supposed to be Israel's king, as Gideon declared. But Abimelech claims kingship for himself, essentially denying God's kingship or rule over the Israelites. God raised up the judges by his power. So when he would raise up a judge, he was the one empowering them. Where did Abimelech get his power? Well, he got it with money that he stole from the temple of a false god. And he uses that money to hire some worthless and reckless fellows to help him around. And if all of this isn't enough, he kills almost all of his 70 brothers to ensure that no other descendants of Gideon could claim the throne. Which is interesting because Gideon wasn't king, right? There should be no descendants of the throne, right? Right. Again, what Gideon denied in his words, he embraced by his actions, and now his sons are paying the price. And finally, above all this, this all takes place in a town called Shechem, which is the very place where, um, in other parts of the Bible, before all this happened, God told Abraham long ago in this same area that he was going to give him this promised land. Um, it was the place where the first altar of the Lord was built in the promised land, and it was a place that Tim Keller describes as the spiritual center and thermometer of Israel. So it's very significant that this is where chapter 9 plagues, takes place. The very place where kind of God promises them this promised land is the very place where everything starts to kind of unravel. So after Abimelech becomes the king, there's one brother that he didn't kill, Jotham. And Jotham tells a parable to all the men there. It's also worth noting that while the name Abimelech means son of the king, the name Jotham means the Lord is perfect, the Lord is blameless. So he's kind of this voice of reason, a voice pointing everybody back to God in the middle of this circus that's kind of unfolding. So he's trying to turn them back to God. And he tells a parable of an olive tree, a fig tree, and a vine, which are all useful plants with beneficial purposes, and they're all passing over the chance to be king. And then there's a thorn bush or briar, which is not a useful plant, but a harmful one, and it becomes king. And even though it can't provide the shade it offers the other trees, because it only grows a few feet tall, it's kind of saying, come rest under my shade. It's giving these empty promises when it's really only going to cause harm and destruction. So Jotham is, Jotham is trying to make the people see this huge mistake that they're making and making Abimelech king over them. He tells them, if you've made this choice with truth and integrity, which they hadn't, he hopes that they all rejoice. And then he tells them in verse 20, but if not, let out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and um, oh, let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham goes and hides because he knows he will suffer the same fate as his brothers as if he stays. So he kind of goes and takes some hiding, which I do not blame him. <laughs> and then we see that Abimelech rules for three years, which seems like a very long time to be in this situation. But God is not about to let these appalling acts go unpunished. Um, he's also not going to let the acts of the people of Shechem go unpunished because they are the ones who embraced him as king. Nobody was out there saying, no, what about God? Like they all just said, yes, you be our king. So um, he's not going to let that go unpunished either. So he sets in motion Abimelech and Shechem's downfall by sending an evil spirit between them. The men begin to turn against Abimelech. And we see that the men start robbing people along the road while waiting to ambush him. So kind of what's happening here is Abimelech has, has left the city for a while. He's gone out of town. And one of the marks of a good leader is that it was safe to travel. But when it's not even safe to travel somewhere and you have, are in fear of getting robbed, that is kind of a sign that your leader is not doing his job. So these men, they go out there and start robbing, robbing people along the road to start to stir people up against Abimelech. 
And then after this, another man named Gaul starts to pursue the kingship for himself. And he kind of gets a large following of men behind him who have all turned from Abimelech. And so while Abimelech is gone and um, Gaul tries to kind of round all these people up and they all get excited because they're going to kind of take over the throne and they all get drunk. And they start really bad-mouthing Abimelech and talking about how they're going to remove him from the throne and they're going to take over. Well, Abimelech hears about this. He gets upset and the city leader has his plan. And so he goes along with it. He lies in wait with his men in a field. And then when morning comes, they come out and they rush against all these men who have sided with Gaul and kill them. But that wasn't enough for Abimelech. You would think, okay, these are the people who are um, kind of trying to overthrow me. I've dealt with them. We're good to go. No, that was not enough. Because the next day he starts to see just regular everyday people go out to the fields to do their work. And he decides he needs to kill them too. So he begins killing all of the workers in the fields, just regular everyday people who had nothing to do with this whole plot to overthrow him. Um, And then that kind of escalates to he kills everybody in the city. (laughs) Even the people that go and hide in this temple, he burns the temple down. And surely that's enough. No, that is not enough for him. Then he feels the need to destroy the land. He's killed all the people. Now he destroys the land. He ruins it for any future crops by assaulting it. Um, and so we see now that like it didn't take an oppressive outside kingdom to ravage their land this time. The Israelites were just doing it to themselves now. And even that wasn't enough for him. He's still not done because then he goes to another town, Thebes, and he captures it and he starts killing everybody there as well. And everyone in Thebes fled to this strong tower in, the, in, the, in their city for protection, kind of the way the people in the last city did. And so the same way Abimelech and his men, they try to burn it down too. But this time, there's a woman in the tower who throws down a large stone. And when she does, it kind of crushes Abimelech's skull. And he was done for, um, but he didn't die instantly. But he knew that death was coming. And because we know that, we learned last week that to be killed by a woman was the most humiliating death for a warrior in that culture, he asked for his armor bearer to finish the job and slay him so that it would never be said that a woman killed him. Um, And this is how the false kingship ends that he had started. Um... Everybody who was still alive just went home. And while we're told um, throughout the book, we don't see God's actions and the leaders of the men of the city. Like, we don't hear them talking about God. Nobody's following God. We hear, we're hearing the story about all the, what the people did, but we're not hearing about God. But we do know because of a couple of verses in there that God was most certainly present. He was using Abimelech and the men of Shechem for his purposes. He used each of them to enact his just judgment on the other even though they might not have been aware of that. The Israelites needed saving, but this time it wasn't from this outside oppressor. They needed saving from themselves. And God sees to it that Abimelech and the people of Shechem are given justice for what they have done. So, we've had five judges now in this book. Does it seem like the Israelites are any closer to seeking after God on their own? No, it's so the opposite. They are falling apart. What just happened in chapter 9 was a total train wreck. They have completely abandoned their God. But we see the kindness and the grace of God if we look at just the first few verses of chapter 10. Because when he gives them Tola and Jer to judge them, as Tim Keller puts it, they have sunk to the depths and they are not even crying out in repentance. Yet God sends them them Tola and Jer to be the judge saviors that they're not even asking for. But no enemy is named. Who did Tola raise to save Israel from? Chapter 9 gives us the answer. Tola saved Israel from itself. Let's pray. 
God, thank you so much for your incredible grace and how much you extend your grace time and time again when, like the Israelites, we do not deserve it. And we are constantly seeking after false gods in our culture and turning away from you. But God, your grace, um, it just it just never ends. And so God, thank you that you continue to offer grace and that you continue as you the same way that you continue to bring these judges to these Israelites when they were not repentant. You bring grace and forgiveness to us and you initiate salvation to us when we don't deserve it and when our hearts are looking elsewhere. So God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for how much you love us. Uh, I pray that we would be changed by the book of Judges. I pray that more and more we would see how we are not so different from the Israelites and that we would see how good you are and how loving and how gracious you are and that our hearts would fall more and more in love with you as a result of this study, Lord. Um, God, we love you and pray that you would continue to be with us as we continue study. It's in your name we pray. Amen.